Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, John Mitchell looks at the history of Coniston Water and its surrounding area. I think I became seduced by the Southern Lake District. And by the time I got to this stage of life, I've had a lot of lot of involvement and a lot of feedback and delight from, from all the contacts in the Lake District that I've had. The talk has five items of historical interest centred on Coniston Water, Coniston Village and the surrounding mountains. Coniston Water is five and a half miles long and half a mile wide. It's the fifth largest lake located in, in the Southern Lake District. The village population apparently was 1,600 in the 2011 census, so it's quite a small village. That doesn't include the holiday population, of course, just the domicile ones. The Old Man of Coniston is the local peak, which is well known, and it's actually 2,632 feet high. So not too high, but a lovely mountain. The subjects that I've, I've got, and I'll explain how I came to be linking with those in a minute, Five subjects, Arthur Ransom, who's an author and journalist, John Ruskin, who was a Victorian art critic, one of the instigators of certain socialist principles. Copper Mines Valley is a mining and quarrying centre in the Bowl Valley, just above Coniston, and they've been quarrying there since the 16th century. Donald Campbell, who lost his life on Coniston Water, he had world water and land speed records. And finally, the, the gondola, which is a lovely old steam boat, kitted out in the most luxurious way, which gets more use as you get older and you want to put your feet up for an afternoon. Now, the personal connections, I'll, I'll just summarise them. Over, it's a 70-year period, because it started when I was only, only about 10 years old. Swallows and Amazons, by Arthur Ransom, focused on, on the, the ideas of Coniston Water. I got that from my parents uh, in, in 1948, I was about 10, totally fired me with excitement uh, of this family of children aged between about 11 and 17, four of them camping on the island and adventuring. And some of you I, I expect have read it, but yet there it was a very popular children's book and is still, still being sold, I think. You may have seen the film Swallows and Amazons sometime. But uh, the jetty where the, the boat came from, where the swallows were based, was located at a, a place called Bankground Farm on the east side of, of the lake, opposite the village. I was camping with a pal from university when I was about in, in the early 20s, and he had a cousin with a little sailing dinghy who lived in Coniston Village. And he and I took this little sailing dinghy out. We'd never sailed a, a boat before. It's only a little, a little gaff rig, clinker-built, varnished hull with a, a nice red tan sail. Pretty little thing. And it was very much the sort of boat that these children would, would, be, would be sailing. His name was Alan Baxter, and he went on to create a quite a large engineering consultancy of 
my parents and sisters stayed at Bankground Farm, and that would have been in about 1961. And then after that, as my family came along, we had numerous holidays in National Trust cottages, which were often in pretty lo remote locations over the years, about 65 to 90. Then later on, in about 1993, uh, we bought a, a small cottage in Hawkshead, which is a village just over the low ridge, Hawkshead Hill. We bought that because it, it facilitated the fun times we were having. When we got that, we visited Brentwood, and that, that was what led me into learning more about Ruskin, a very fascinating person. Later on, over the years, we climbed a, a lot of uh, mountains, a lovely sort of horseshoe of mountains, Coniston Old Man, and then Brimfell, and then round to Swirl Howe, and Black Sail, and then up to Weatherham, which is my favourite mountain of them all. You can walk round this lovely ridge walk. You come down to near Coniston again, half going round there. But the Copper Mines Valley is, is, and I'll be talking about the history of the mining there briefly. Malcolm Campbell, I noticed when I went to the Rus there's a Ruskin Museum in the village. They had, I think, for a short time, the wreck of the, the boat when it was salvaged. But now it's been taken up to Scotland. They ought to be rebuilt, which has happened. That was the link to, to Donald and Malcolm Campbell. And finally, the gondola yacht, you got on that at uh, Coniston Pier and had a delightful ride down the lake. So that was in latter stages, more recent years, that's been very nice to do. <laughs> and Arthur Ransom. He was born in 1884, and he died in 1967. His father was a professor of history at Yorkshire College in Leeds. The baby Arthur was carried up the Coniston Old Man as infant by his family. He studied chemistry at Yorkshire College, but left after a year to become a writer, establishing himself in this. He married in 1909. A biography of Oscar Wilde led to a libel suit to recover fees. Arthur won the suit, but his health and marriage was affected. In 1913, he left his wife and went to Russia to study its folklore. In 1914, he became a foreign correspondent for the Daily News. He became enmeshed in the Bolshevik cause and became close to Lenin, Trotsky and Reddick. He met Trotsky's personal secretary, Ivania Shalapsina, who later became his second wife. He worked for the Manchester Guardian in 1919 and took a very risky journey with a message for Estonia proposing armistice with the Bolsheviks. He was, he was located in, in, in Russia at the time. And they accepted the message. He had to sort of hide in car boots and uh, etc. to get out, get out of Russia. He set up home in Tallinn, Estonia, with Ivania, before returning to England with the Guardian. By the late 1920s, he settled in the Lake District and, and wrote Swallows and Amazons in 1929. It was based on a local family of a Dr. Artunian, whose children probably bore the names of John, Susan, Titty and Roger. They used to sail from the, the same jetty where I, I went out in, in that little boat. And it was the same type of boat. Right, John Ruskin, born in 1819, died in 1900. He was the leading English art crit critic of the Victorian era. He was a painter, social thinker, philanthropist and writer. John was the child of a businessman and his evangelical Christian wife, who were fiercely ambitious for him. 
she taught young John to read and reread the entire Bible from end to end, memorizing large portions of it. He was educated at King's College and Christchurch College, Oxford. He was influenced by extensive travels with his parents involving visits to business clients in country houses all over England and to many European countries, including visits to the Lake District and, and to the mountains in the Alps. His first publication was the poem on Skiddaw and Derwentwater, both places in the Lake District. Ruskin was not happy at Oxford. He was accompanied by his mother, who lived nearby in the High Street, near his college. He suffered from ill health, including fear of consumption. He was awarded a double fourth class degree in 1842. In 1845, he traveled independently in Europe for the first time and established himself as a leading thinker and writer on modern art. He was a great supporter of J.M.W. Turner and catalogued 20,000 sketches given to the British Museum. In 1848, John Ruskin married Effie Gray and lived in Mayfair. The marriage was unhappy, not consummated, and annulled in 1854. He had known Effie since she was a child, aged 12. From 1840 until 1846, he travelled extensively in Europe and wrote two major volumes titled Modern Painters, exploring the relationship between the aesthetic and the divine. From 1851 until 1853, he wrote three volumes called The Stones of Venice, sparked off by the deterioration which he saw in the city. The books were a warning on the decline on moral and spiritual health in society. The books were a social critique of industrial capitalism and had a profound impact. His belief in the rights of the poor is summed up in his statement that there is no wealth but life. I was struck by that when I looked around the exhibition in Brantwood and just struck me as a very apposite. In 1853, he became associated with the artist Millet, who fell in love with Effie, leading to the divorce the next year following which Millet and Effie were married. In the mid-1850s, Ruskin was involved in many aspects of education, including girls' schools and colleges. He highlighted the poverty of peasants in the Lower Alps. In 1862, he published a definitive work titled Unto This Last, around the concept of the social economy, including the views of Mahatma Gandhi and of the British Labour Party. In 1869, he was appointed as a Slade Professor of Fine Art at Oxford University. In 1871, he retired and moved to his beloved Lake District, purchasing the beautiful house of Brentwood on the eastern shore of Coniston Water. He made various entertaining improvements to the house and became extremely attached to it. In the corners, you can see little turrets at little places where he used to go and sit and look out at the view. The view is a beautiful one. He'd had these mental breakdowns and he retired. And then he was heard to say, this is, this is another quote, if only I could lie down in the cool waters of Coniston, I would be well again. And I thought that summed up his tormented mind. He, he was such a brilliant chap in many, many aspects that it all proved too much for him in the end, and that's what he said. Some of the things he did at the house before he finally died, he, he built a little hydro scheme, 
He built a little harbour in which he kept a rowing boat called Jumping Jenny, which is still on show when you look round the house. He delighted in the garden, which stretched right up a steep hillside behind. And he also delighted in looking at the view from these various turret corner rooms, really, he had built on. It's a fascinating place to go around. I recommend it, really. It's very good. And now we'll move to the Copper Mines Valley. Copper Mines Valley is a sort of bowl-shaped valley. On the left-hand side is the old man of Coniston. Going along the ridge, you, you get to Brimfell, then Swirlhow, on which there's a wreck of an old Second World War American Air Force plane that crashed in, in bad weather. Unfortunately, it was too low and hit the top of the mountain, and the, some of the wreckage is still there. And just off to the right is my favourite mountain called Weatherland. That valley is honeycombed with workings, as I'll tell you in a moment, which was the copper mining industry. So mining for copper and slate at Coniston started in the 16th century and gathered momentum in 1756 when Charles Rowe, a Derbyshire industrialist, started investing. There is a reference to making dams at Levers Water and Low Water. These are two lakes. In the 19th century, water power was used. A depth of 270 feet was reached. In 1849, the maintenance man for a huge water wheel, Thomas Millican, slipped and was caught by the wheel and minced to pieces and washed downstream. It is now known as Millican's Wheel. By 1850, there were 600 men producing 2,000 tonnes a month from the slate quarries and copper mines. The Coniston mines were then the largest in Europe and involved many skilled workers in hard rock tunnelling from Germany. In the 1850s, a railway was completed from Coniston to Furness on the coast to transport the ore and slate. The workings reached a depth of 1,700 feet and relied on the water-powered pumping for drainage and, and for lifting the ore to the surface. By 1890, the mining was becoming uneconomic and pumping was stopped. There's still a bit of a slate quarrying even to this day. By this time, the network of shafts and underground tunnels was intense and many miles long. The exits of these workings can be seen all over the valley sides, together with the remnants of the industrial archaeology of engine pits, water channels or leats, like little canals leading the water to the top. The water is conveyed through channels, keeping the heights so that you've got the power to turn the wheel. There is a small museum in the valley created by a local mine exploration society. The old mine manager's house has been converted into a youth hostel. Some slate coin continues at Coniston up to this day. In the early 20th century, the railway was used for passenger traffic as holiday travel by rail grew in popularity. The line was finally closed in 1962, following which the reduced freight was sent by road. An exploration society operating between 1970 and 1989 discovered quite amazing caverns and shafts up to 200 feet high and then 350 feet down the shafts. Very, very risky exploration indeed. I only came across the details of this about a week ago, and I was absolutely jaw-dropped by the size of these workings and the size of these caverns. Quite amazing, and you can see why it was the largest in Europe. Up to last week, I thought all those tunnels and shafts were little edits, horizontal tunnels, following the vein of, of copper or a mineral that was seeking. But I hadn't realised there were numerous, enormous caverns inside. The pictures showed 
beautiful coloured pictures of the minerals, which were beautiful greens and purples and red, all the colours you could think of. The exploration they've been doing over these recent 15 years or so has been done extremely professionally with all the latest caving and, and climbing techniques and the cataloguing and the drawings that I saw on this detailed port from one of the explorers was very beautifully done. One point which interested me greatly, being a chap who was involved in constructing dams and waterworks and stuff, in 1987, these explorers discovered a 100-year-old timber plug for draining Levers water, which is the bigger of the two lakes. A 100-year-old timber plug I think that Northwestern Authority would be interested to know about that if they don't already. <laughs> it's a highly dubious existence, I think. That's the Copper Mines Valley. Malcolm Campbell and his son, Donald Campbell. Malcolm was born back in 1885 and died in 1948. Donald, born in 1921, and he died in 1967. Malcolm Campbell set several land speed records and was the first person to drive an automobile at 300 miles an hour. He then set the water speed record four times, the highest being 171 miles an hour in 1939. His son Donald was born in 1921. Donald developed the jet-powered hydroplane known as Bluebird K7 and raised the water speed record to 276 miles an hour. In 1967, when making a bid to raise the record to over 300 miles an hour, Bluebird had a first run on Lake Coniston, which reached 311 miles an hour at peak. The second run in the reverse direction was done too soon, and it hit the wash from the first run, and the boat left the water and somersaulted backwards, right into the air. The boat was destroyed, and Donald was killed. Previously, in 1964, Donald had achieved new water and land speed records in the same year the land speed being 403 miles an hour. In 2001, the wreckage of Bluebird and the body of Donald were recovered. He is buried in Coniston Cemetery. The wreck of Bluebird was bequeathed to the Ruskin Museum in Coniston and it has now been restored. She has been refloated and run at up to 150 miles an hour once more. The restoration was featured in The One Show on BBC TV in 2018. There is currently a legal row over the return of the restored boat to a purpose-built wing of the Ruskin Museum in Coniston, or kept elsewhere for display use currently in Scotland by Bill Smith, who was the engineer from Leeds or thereabouts, who did the successful renovation of the Gondola steam yacht. So Gondola was modelled on wooden barges which carried passengers on the Riviera del Brenta between the 16th and 18th centuries. She was built of a steel and wrought iron hull with a state-of-the-art boiler and engine borrowed from railway technology, together with a screw propeller as adopted by Brunel for the steamship Great Britain. She was registered for 200 passengers in a first-class saloon, they'd be pretty crowded, finished in walnut, wood and cushioned, decorated in the style of the royal carriages of the railways. She was said to be the most elegant little steam vessel yet designed. She, she was built by James Ramsden, mayor of Barrow in Furness and a director of both Coniston Railway Company and Furness Railway Company. Gondola was part of a great circle itinerary used by the Victorians, routed from Fleetwood to Coniston by a road, rail and Windermere and Coniston lakes, a circular tour really. 
As demand reduced, Gondola was retired in 1936. She laid derelict for years until a rebuild in 1980, and she can now be seen doing regular trips around Lake Coniston, past John Rutkin's house at Brentwood, at a cruising speed of about nine miles an hour. Now, just to round things off, how things have changed in the lakes. So I've called it Coniston from 1950 to 2020. James Rebanks, a farmer in Matterdale in the Lake District, has written two acclaimed books. One was called A Shepherd's Life, and one is called English Pastoral. The two books are very popular. The Shepherd's Life was published in 2015, and The English Pastoral was published in 2020, quite recent. These books chart the changes in farming practice over this period and lament the departure from close contact with the land farm animals, natural use of the ecology involved. This is mirrored in the experiences of leisure over the years in the lakes. In the 1970s, we were lucky to experience some magical days with our young family, scrambling up various summits and plunging into deserted pools and tarns in complete silence, apart from birdsong and the cries of young lambs and the gasps when you hit the cold water. Afterwards, returning to remote National Trust farmhouses with minimal facilities. Travelling was via the old A5, dicing with death on a three-lane road, the centre lane for overtaking in either direction. The many heavy lorries on the road would take up about seven hours for the trip, but it was worth it. By now, the leisure industry has taken off in a much more sophisticated way. In Copper Mines Valley, the, the mines are being explored and mapped, as I told you, with modern caving and climbing techniques. At, at Honister Quarry, zip wires allow zooming for hundreds of meters across the valley, and via ferrata, which is a metal fittings bolted into the rock, allow everyone with courage to scale almost vertical rock faces. A peaceful track from Tilberthwaite, which is at the foot of Wetherlam, to Little Langdale in the Langdale Valleys has just been opened to four-wheel drive vehicles, to my horror. And yet the drive up can still take up to seven hours, more on bank holidays, if you've ever tried it. But it's still worth it to see that the ridges of Wetherlam and the cool waters of Coniston. I'll just read you in conclusion one paragraph of this English pastoral, and this is Rebanks talking now, not me. He says, I've worked here my whole life, but I'm only now beginning to truly know this piece of land. I stumble across a field at a different time of day or in different light, and I feel as if I've never seen it before, not the way it is now. The more I learn about it, the more beautiful our farm and valley become. It pains me to ever be away. I never want to be wrenched from this place and its constant motion. The longer I'm here, the clearer I hear the music of this valley the Jenny Wren in the undergrowth, the Scots pines creaking and groaning in the wind, the meadow grasses whispering. The distinctions between me and this place blurs until I become part of it. And when they set me in the earth here, it will be the conclusion of a longer, lifelong story of return. The I and the me fades away, erodes with each passing day, until it is already an effort to remember who I am and why I am supposed to matter. The modern world worships the idea of the self, the individual, but it is a gilded cage. There is another kind of freedom in becoming absorbed in a little life on the land. In a noisy age, 
I think perhaps trying to live quietly might be a virtue. On that point, I'll stop. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.